Kitty Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats Podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we're speaking with Jane Sage. Jane began TNR work as an advocate for her own neighborhood in 2002, soon after moving to Albuquerque. Fixing over 70 cats out of her own backyard, she began looking into nearby neighborhoods to assist there. Appalled by the euthanasia numbers at the Albuquerque shelter, she began advocating for TNR citywide and beyond, and eventually working with the Albuquerque Animal Welfare Department when returned to field was adopted by the shelter. After volunteering for the local TNR program for 10 years, she volunteered and then was employed by Best Friends from 2012 to 2015, serving as program coordinator for the final year of the three-year community cat program, which was awarded to the Albuquerque Animal Welfare Department as the shelter embraced TNR and other progressive life-saving practices. She went on to found the nonprofit Street Cat Hub to continue the work of the successful Best Friends program. This success has continued under her leadership as executive director of Street Cat Hub operating with a contract with both the city of Albuquerque and Bernalillo County and working directly with the shelters. As a result of her efforts and the group's efforts, the euthanasia rate for cats in Albuquerque plummeted 95% from 2009 to 2017. In addition, the calls for dead cat pickup were reduced by 60%. Jane, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Thank you for having me, Stacey. I appreciate you joining me. This is fascinating information. Sounds like so much has changed so much in Albuquerque in quite a short period of time. I mean, it seems like it's a long period, but it also seems quite short. You sort of began this work back in 2002. Tell me a little bit more about how you really got involved in TNR and, and became a passionate advocate for cats. Well, it really was rooted in the neighborhood that I moved into and just seeing the problem that was here. I owned one cat at the time who was indoor only and leash trained. So it was kind of a new experience to be dealing with a lot of free roaming outdoor cats. So it really was the very grassroots, finding surgeries for the cats and talking to neighbors and working with the neighbors on educating them on spay and neuter and taking their own cats to get fixed and, you know, talking to the kids and just getting those changes made on this block alone. Were you involved in nonprofit work before this time or were you trained in anything else? I was not. No, I wasn't doing anything with animals prior to this. Because it sounds like you have a very big picture mindset around cats and community cats. And I find it always very interesting to find out what folks' background and training has been to be able to sort of look big picture. And I find folks that are doing TNR are a little bit more aware of that big picture down the road thought process. It also sounds like you felt very involved with the city or felt that there should be a role with the city with regards to TNR. And I know that in many communities, we sometimes say, oh, well, the city shouldn't be involved in it. They should just let us do our own thing. What are your thoughts in that relationship, that sort of public-private relationship between organizations? 
Well, I knew from the number of cats that were being euthanized at the shelter that something had to connect to the shelter. Um, You know, initially they were just posting the numbers of euthanasias at the shelter. And I did public information requests, which at that time were kind of hard to get from the shelter. But I got them to separate out how many of those were cats, how many of them were dogs. And at that time, the cats were the predominant. I mean, by, by far, a lot more cats were being euthanized than dogs. I knew because of how many euthanasias were taking place at the shelter at some point that had to connect to that. You know, we really actually, you know, we had Trap Neuter Return program in Albuquerque. Actually, it was quite a bit older than my involvement here. They had a really good grassroots program starting in about 1990 with Street Cat Companions, which was a program out of New Mexico Animal Friends. And they were doing totally separate from the city, but, you know, kind of working with individuals. And um, it was kind of hard to find the cats even then, you know, because we were, everybody was kind of in the closet about feeding and, you know, not really wanting exposure of having traps come around and that kind of thing. So it was a little bit hard to get the cats back then. But once we started to get that connection with the city, then we also got that connection to where the cats were because we started to get the addresses of where the cats were coming in from. Uh, That started before Best Friends got here. But when Best Friends got here, that partnership just completely opened up. Folks were bringing cats into the shelter and then they were getting euthanized back in, let's say, you know, 2005, 2008. The cats were getting euthanized and there was no return to field or that much education at the city level about trap neuter return. Correct. I think we had gotten the city to do some surgeries for us. We did a small clinic for a while. So we did open that door a little bit. They were euthanizing like 8,000 cats a year back in 2007, and I think now we're under four or 500 a year. It was really bad and not very many outlets for the cats. We did get a, a little bit of interest in the city, and, and the other thing we were able to do before Best Friends got here was we were starting to do a little bit of return to field through our program. You know, Once we got access to those addresses, we were able to kind of pick out a few cats, which actually I think turned out to be quite a few. I think it was more like eight 900 we got out just kind of picking out addresses where we didn't think anybody would really recognize that the cats had come back. So we were able to just kind of sneak a few of them out. And and I think it was kind of with the understanding, it's like, hey, you know, if nobody's complaining, then this is fine. And the shelter workers were obviously okay with it. So we did a lot of that, which I think is why Best Friends really took an interest in Albuquerque, because we had that strong program that went back to 1990. And then we also had started dabbling with the return to field program already. So it was a pretty good setup for them choosing us as one of their two pilot programs for the community cat program. So if you wouldn't mind sharing with us, what were the components of the Best Friends program? Uh, That was a million-dollar program spread out over three years. We started with two employees. It kind of fluctuated. Sometimes we had two employees. We went up to having as many as four employees for a while with that. We just had the one van that we worked from here. And everything that was from the city, we returned. So they would designate what cats were going to be sent to best friends. They would stay at intake. And then we would pick those cats up from intake. And then we would take them to surgery. And we would do everything outside of the shelter. It's a little bit bit of a hybrid program compared to what Best Friends does most of the time because most of their programs are completely within the shelter. So they're having their shelter clinics do the surgeries. The cats are being picked up from the shelter and return. But since we did have this going on the outside, we've done everything outside of the shelter. So we've got a place where we hold the cats. When we trap, we bring the cats there and we hold them. And then we transport the cats to surgery from there, which it's a little bit cumbersome, but it keeps a lot of that clutter out of the shelter too. So their clinic doesn't deal with the 
feral cats and their intake doesn't deal with them for very long. So um, the Best Friends program, this was all pretty much return to field cats, or were they also going for adoption, being placed with adoption partners, a combination? It was a combination. We had the return to field, which, you know, when it first started was kind of a higher percentage. And then as we got further into it, the return to field has dropped off over the years and a very, very strong trap neuter return component to that. So we were not only getting those cats, but trying to respond to the neighborhoods where those cats were coming from and trying to respond to the 311 calls before those cats even got into the shelter. So it really has evolved into a program where we're trying to get to those calls before any cats even come to the shelter. And then the adoption thing is also one of those things that's kind of changed throughout the years because initially when Best Friends was here, we did some adoptions. I mean, we get anything into rescue groups that we can. It's just, you know, with the numbers that we're dealing with, they can't update all of it. So a lot of what we deal with for adoptions does go back to the city shelter. So it really is an issue of how much can they manage. And, you know, initially it was none. I mean, we were putting back just about every everything, tame cats. We weren't pulling very many kittens because the shelter still had a high enough euthanasia rate that we really didn't want to put any there. But kind of towards the end of Best Friends and then as it progressed, the things at the shelter were were much better. So they were able to handle us bringing in more kittens and more of the tame cats, especially in kind of the off months from May through November. You know, not as much, but in the winter, we do try to get as many of the tame cats off the street as we can. So I think starting with the best friends, I think we were pulling about six, seven percent for adoption to where I think last year we pulled around 30 percent of what we did. I think it was over 600 cats and kittens that we got off the street. And then best friends, their time finished and was a brand new nonprofit started. Was Street Cat Hub already in existence or was that brand new? Street Cat Hub was brand new at that point. And that was something that I founded to fill that gap. And we did go back to our parent organization that we had worked with, with New Mexico Animal friends and they didn't want to take on something this big. They do some adoptions, just not the large numbers. So so their preference was that we break off and do it on our own. So we did form Street Cat Hub to take over that role that Best Friends had played. And then that relationship with New Mexico Animal Friends remained good. We still work with them on referrals and that kind of thing. And how was that setting up a brand new organization? I mean, there's so many challenges with a brand new nonprofit. How did that process work? Well, in a way, it wasn't too hard because Best Friends had been here. So we kind of knew what our role was going to be and everything was kind of in place. So there was few of us, especially myself, who was consistent throughout the program. So the shelter kind of knew who that point person was. So there was very few changes from the shelter end as far as how things ran, except for the money was coming from the shelter budget rather than best friends at that point. So forming a nonprofit was, (laughs) you know, I mean, it took a lot, it it did take a lot of work. And I, I did get assistance from Neighborhood Cats at that time was helping some people with the fund and the recommendations on how to go about that. Um, So Susie Richmond did help guide me through that process too. So that was very helpful. And I had somebody else who had, I think she actually had helped write the nonprofit stuff for Alley Cat Allies years ago. And somehow she had landed in Albuquerque and had done a lot of the writing for me too. So it it happened pretty smoothly, pretty quickly. I mean, we did use a legal organization that did it for a living and that made made sure that everything went through real smoothly. So it just barely got in place in time for what we needed it to happen for the public funding. 
Do you want to create amazing videos that get animals adopted? Then check out RescueTube, where they've simplified the creation of adoption and fundraising videos. Volunteers and fosters simply upload raw video, and RescueTube turns it into amazing stories set to music. They even post it on your social media for you. Check out rescue.tube to learn more. You have a contract with the city, so therefore a bulk of your funding comes from there. And then you have private donors and do the usual fundraising that most groups end up having to do. We don't do a lot of fundraising. We do a lot of letter writing and just like people that know the program and just try to keep all those people on board and grow that. And then we also do have a contract with Bernalillo County. So that gets the funding for outside of city limits. And Best Friends did fund Valencia County not too long ago. They put some more money into that. They weren't going to do any more in Albuquerque, but they did help a little bit with the surrounding area. So we've had some funding from different places, but the city contract and the county contract really are the core of the funding. Obviously, we're talking about some substantial population here, really significant areas. And my guess is that there are still more cats that need assistance of some kind than you have full capacity that you're able to give. So how do you think strategically or how are you handling your targeting for your program? Well, initially, like I said, it was kind of hard to find the cats. And at that time, we did use some mapping. So we were going off some of the intakes at the city. And I was using Batch Geo at the time to do the mapping. And that kind of pinpointed where our major populations are. And those actually haven't changed a lot. Those still are along a couple of major corridors, and they tend to be areas with a lot of rental properties. So we targeted that way initially, just trying to find the cats. And then And once Best Friends was involved, then we had our target cats from those cats that were showing up at the city shelter. A lot of what we've done now, it's real similar to to kind of the way I got started in this neighborhood is we've been in these neighborhoods for seven, eight, nine years. So once we've got a colony that we've worked, our targeting really focuses on getting everything from that area. So we want anything free roaming. We want everybody's tame cats. We want that education to take place on the whole block. So that they know who to contact if there's something new going on and then kind of working our way out. Uh, We did a lot of door hangers, which we don't get a great response to. You almost have to just be there, right? When people are coming home from work, if you want to get your information. But over the years, we've been able to kind of grow those areas within each neighborhood, you know, so we've kind of had the same thing that I have here at my place growing out in other neighborhoods. So we may not know that somebody else was feeding on the next block over that first time we worked there, but then the next year we find that out or we get a different call. So then we can kind of start piecing those little puzzles together in the different neighborhoods and start growing out from those colonies. Now, a lot of these colonies are going to start for three reasons. One is basic abandonment, which we've tried to approach that just by having some place for people to call and being able to direct them what to do with that cat. Sometimes those cats are going to the shelter. I get a little concerned sometimes about the managed intake and just discouraging people a little bit too much, not taking the cat right away. I think we have to be real careful that that's not, you know, people are not just leaving those cats behind when they move because that's really where these colony start. The other thing that we really try to focus on is most people still get their cats from someplace other than the shelter. 
shelter when they adopt them. So, you know, the shelter cats, everybody in Albuquerque is going to be fixed. It's by law. They can't leave the shelter unfixed. But a lot of people still get their cats either off the street or from a friend or from a relative. So we really try to be available to get those cats sterilized so that, you know, they may be able to find homes for the first six kittens, but the second litter ends up going outside and just kind of being ignored. And then you get another feral colony started that way. And then the other way I think you see these colonies growing is when you have a colony that's not being fixed and it's starting to expand out into the neighborhood where it's getting so big that the mom has a litter on the next block over and then somebody starts to feed her and the kittens. And then you've got almost like a whole separate colony starting over there. So that's where, you know, working with that colony in that neighborhood and working our way out from that colony in that neighborhood to make sure that if you see this going on or you see kittens, then, you know, we're going to step in and work with that area. First and foremost, I mean, obviously we can't get to everybody, but we try to just always stay up on the ones that we have done and keep working our way out from there. I mean, I'm a firm believer of getting Adam and Eve, and that's getting them spayed and neutered before they potentially have an abandonment situation. And I feel that's the bedrock for success for reducing community cat populations is by getting the owned cat or quasi-owned cat population as sterilized as possible, because that's going to prevent so much out in the community. It gives that cat a chance of even finding a home on its own if it's spayed or neutered. I mean, I not many people I know want to have an unneutered cat living in their house. So, you know, even if that cat is out there on the street and abandoned, the potential for the community to adopt that cat is a lot higher if it's already spayed or neutered. So where there are things that are in our control, there are other things that may not be in our control, but if we can source that cat getting spayed or neutered as early as possible in its process of living, I think the better off we're going to be at the end of the day. One of our commitments and, and any of the volunteers, you know, they're, they're all kind of on this same page whatever that hurdle is, figure out what it is and let's eliminate it. You know, so if it's a, I think I can find a home for this cat. If I have it fixed, then okay, what's it going to take? And it's like, well, I don't have a carrier. Okay. Can you pick a carrier up from us? Um, Well, I don't really have transportation. I mean, we're going out, whatever the hurdle is, we're going to eliminate that hurdle. I mean, the whole concept of it's like, well, if somebody's going to adopt a cat, they really should be able to get that cat to a vet and learn about that experience. And that's all great. It's just got a lot of people that aren't there yet. Somebody gave them a cat at their relative's party and they've got this kitten at home and they're not going to take the time to do that. So we just want to get to that kitten as soon as we can. And, and truthfully, I think it's a part of where we've gotten in a little bit over our heads is I think Street Cat Hub really has become known as the go-to place. So when somebody finds a kitten, it's like, oh, I know I know this group that'll fix it. Go talk to them. And it's kind of like neighborhood kids when they find a kitten. The first thing they do is they bring it over to Jane, you know, and say, Jane, I think this thing needs. <laughs> you know, and so the, the word is kind of out there, but it's a huge need. So, yep. you know, so we're trying to keep those barriers down so that people can get those cats fixed, regardless of what the circumstances are. But, you know, it takes a lot of resources to meet those needs. You mentioned a bit earlier in the the show when you first started out, when Best Friends first started out, they were talking about the fact that six or seven percent of the cats that were being trapped or brought in were then put up for adoption. And then you had mentioned that that percentage has increased substantially over the years to, I think you may have said at some point around 30 percent or so. And then people do say, you know, is there a vacuum effect or how does that sort of impact the overall community? And I know it's a hot topic 
is how do we evaluate our successes without just using the shelter metrics as a measurement of success for our community cat programs? Is there something within this statement that helps us measure our successes better? Our best measure of success, I think, really is the calls for dead cats. And that's been reduced by almost 50%. It's There's been a lot of changes in the intake for a lot of reasons. Some of it is just not taking cats from certain jurisdictions anymore. Some of it is now we've had the county shelter is peeled off and they have their own shelter. So our intakes have gone down for a variety of reasons. And one of those obvious reasons that critics talk about is, well, you're telling them not to bring feral cats to the shelter. So of course, the number of feral cats being brought to the shelter is going to be reduced somewhat just on that basis. I think the measure of the kittens coming to the shelter is still a pretty good measure because those they aren't really being told not to bring to the shelter and people are, you know, they can get a hold of them still and bring them in when they're little. So I think the reduction in kittens coming to the shelter is a decent measure also. But as far as the actual vacuum effect, I think when an officer goes out and they pick up a litter of kittens, which our officers, they don't do a lot of cat pickups. Sometimes they will if there's issues with an injured cat or kitten or something. Or if a citizen brings it in, I think that area becomes very vulnerable to the vacuum effect because nothing else has really been done to stop that from, you know, that cat from having another litter of kittens or from other cats moving in. And I think I always say like the cats and kittens that we take to the shelter are gold. Um, Not that the shelter wants the intake, but what's on the other side of that is we have gotten the mom fixed. We have followed up on where all those litter mates are. So the citizen said, well, I have a home for one of the kittens. It's like, great, give me their number or, you know, let's hear from them and we're going to get that kitten fixed too. And it's like, oh, really? (laughs) It's like, yeah, we've got got to get everybody fixed that's associated with this trapping job. So we may take a litter to the shelter, which may affect their intakes, but we're guaranteeing that there won't be other kittens or as close as to guaranteeing as we can, obviously. There aren't going to be more kittens from that particular colony or household. And now that neighborhood has a contact of who to talk to to try to keep any more kittens from being born on that block or in that colony. Ah. So I think we are fighting the vacuum effect. And, you know, the, the thing is, the two, we can talk to people about the food source. So they may say, well, I don't have enough money to feed all these kittens. And we can talk to them about, okay, you know, we really need to keep the food source limited because you really don't want to bring other cats in. Now that we've got this stabilized, we really want you to feed these cats. And then if there's other cats around, we would really rather you know, work on those someplace else. So we really do work with people on how much food to put down. And then that keeps that food source from just growing to meet whatever cat they see. So if folks are interested in finding out more about the work that you're doing and finding out more about Street Cat Hub, how would they reach out to you? Uh, We've got a website, streetcathub.org has information. Emailing is probably the easiest way for us to respond, streetcathub at gmail.com. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? I believe you might have mentioned there was an article written by Dan Spihar that might have talked about the work that you've done. Yeah, Dan Spihar and Peter Wolf co-authored an article about the program that's got a lot of our numbers in it and a lot of the history about how the program came to be. So there's going to be a link to that with this. And then I think this is just a really good program for people to look at as far as the importance of that grassroots aspect. You know, there's a lot of programs that are coming through the shelters right now, but I I think we still have to have this community aspect and this grassroots aspect and where there's nothing going on, there's just nothing more important than a few people getting started doing it on a small scale. That's great. Well, Jane, I want to thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on my show, and I hope we'll have you on in the future. Thank you, Stacey. 
thank you for listening to the Community Cats podcast. I would really appreciate it if you would go to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It will help spread the word to help more community cats. 